0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. I'm Sasha Wolf and this week on the panel we have Alan Weimar.
1: Hello, my microphone was stuck.
0: <laughs> and nobody. It's just Alan and me. It's like it's very, very personal today.
1: And this is kinda of like the dream team, right? You got Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan, something like that.
0: <laughs> I don't know either of these people.
1: Come on, you're around the same age as me? You, you never watch NBA when you are younger?
0: <laughs> nope, not a thing here. Like, not that big of a thing here in, in Europe. Uh, so. Okay,
1: well, I don't know. Who, who are the famous soccer stars in Germany?
0: I I'm also not into soccer, so I couldn't even tell you. Um, okay, how about Hansel we, and Gretel? Yeah, yeah, I, I know those two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so... They, they didn't get eaten by the witch, so I guess I guess we're good.
1: <laughs> yeah, so but okay. we can also be Hansel and Hansel over here.
2: <laughs> hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topenddevs.com podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want. right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
0: Okay, so uh, we want to talk about OTP today because we always talk about OTP like, okay, if you get started with Elixir, like for example, with the Phoenix Project, you don't need to think that much about OTP. Like it's takes care of a lot of things for you and otp is like more of this intermediate thing you can look and look into but we never i think actually like dived a bit deeper into that and said, okay, like what does that actually mean like what does it mean when we say phoenix takes care of it for you what does it mean when we say uh, it's more of an intermediate thing you can dive into later so today we want to take up that opportunity and talk a bit more about okay what does otp actually offer you and why maybe is it a bit Um, tricky at first and yeah, so I was thinking that started it from this this get-go, from the starting position of, okay, you have your Phoenix application and you write your Phoenix code and exactly, it it is the case, you don't need to think that much about OTP, but like, what for example, does Phoenix do under the hood so you don't need to think about OTP? And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Alan, a lot of that is depending on like what kind of HTTP server you are actually using with uh, Phoenix. Because I mean, most people, I guess, are using Cowboy, but nothing is stopping you from using something else if there is a proper adapter. And then it is Cowboy or whoever, whatever else HTTP server you're using, which is then doing all of that OTP nitty gritty stuff, except maybe for channels, I guess. That's like a whole different story.
1: Uh, what I like about OTP, like let's we'll talk about, Actually, not even OTP, like straight Erlang, right? What I like so much about the way Cowboy does it, and I think probably the way anybody would do it if they're writing an HTTP server, is that every single request is a separate process, and it just matches so properly to when you want to write your Erlang applications, right? Because you don't want one request coming in and trashing everything, right? The fact that each one, if it ever crashes, is isolated. That's because you're running on Erlang with the uh, separate processes, right? The fault tolerance.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it is like from one, I feel like also one of the big selling points people usually talk about, right? Because if you, for example, have your Node.js server and then you have, get stuck in infinite loop for whatever reason. Yeah. Congratulations. Now this particular server is hanging for everybody. And that's just not a thing on the beam. Like uh, if this actually happens on like one of your processes, you end, end up in like an infinite loop of some kind. Yeah. Then the request of this one person is hanging, but like the beam handles that very gracefully. Like it has this idea of reductions which is how it basically cycles through a processes and gives it them cpu times and like schedules them and if like a process hits that certain level of reductions i think it's 2000 by default and then it actually schedules the next process and like a reduction can be any can be like anything like for example uh function calls are reduction and some other things. I don't know the specific details here, but that's like how, how it figures out, okay, I give that process this much space to do work, and then the next process is due. And so even if you have like a process that's has got completely high wire, it only impacts the whole system so much.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's my train of thought. Sorry. I <laughs> no problem. When I was trying to think about it. it's <laughs>
0: um, getting late over
1: here. Yeah, um, the, so, other... so you guys know, I'm actually recovering from cutting my hand on a piece of glass, so I'm still trying to recover from that so maybe yep. the drugs are starting to kick in
0: <laughs> at least it's not uh breaking your bones on a push-up
1: yeah so i'm glad i'm not that guy <laughs> whoever that guy is <laughs> sorry for blasting him out on podcast
0: <laughs> you're like okay to, to get back yeah, I mean, to like...
1: the reductions right yeah i mean it's really cool like and actually i don't know if, who came up with this idea about how many reductions and all that stuff like It's really crazy that, I mean, we have this kind of idea that you can do fast switching, right? And what makes it also interesting, too, is like nowadays, OTP or Erlang can run on multiple cores. like But when it first came out, it was only single core. And so they had to be able to handle lots of phone calls. And they just devised this magic idea that you would use 2,000 reductions, which is roughly about, what is it, like one stack frame or something like that, one function call? That's what they say. Yeah, it's roughly, roughly, roughly. But they don't. They do say roughly, but I don't even know what the heck that even means. I still wish I could figure out exactly what a reduction is. I'm sure somebody has some kind of idea. But yeah, that's that's also kind of cool. But too, but like even that too. There's also something called dirty nips. Like there's dirty scheduler where you can run stuff and fit until it's all the way to the end too, which is also kind of interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't the, think the, you can. You cannot schedule like actual Erlang code to run just directly on a dirty scheduler. I think right. Okay,
0: yeah. I, I've never dealt with dirty schedulers. Like, I know they exist. I mean, like and to give some context for, all, for our listeners here, like a scheduler is like what actually takes care of at the end of the day running a process, right? And like what the Beam does is when it starts up, it figures out how many cores you have, and then it starts that many schedulers. So like one scheduler per core. That's how like parallelism is done. And there is this thing called dirty schedulers, which from my understanding is basically like they are allowed to... Ignore the usual scheduling rules. That's that's basically what they do. So it's yeah, so that maybe, sense.
1: actually, it's kind of more complicated than that, right? Because you have a couple of I don't know how many, like about two I/O threads that you can use to read and write from. So two I/O schedulers, I think, and then you have one thread or scheduler per core that's regular. I don't know what the what the name is for that one. And then there's the dirty ones, right? I guess they're called clean schedulers in that case. And then there's the dirty ones, which actually, I'm not sure how many dirty ones you actually have. Is, is it just two or something? I, they, they It's not the same amount as far as I know. I have used those because the the good part about using those is like, if you're going to write a NIF, it's good to use that because... It's very, very difficult to, like, to, because the thing is you have to keep in sync with the scheduler, right? You can't write a NIF and then hog the scheduler because it's going to throw your whole entire machine off. So the fact that you have these dirty schedulers is actually kind of nice if you're writing NIFs because otherwise you have to be very careful that you don't use up too much time on the scheduler and it will, like, freak out if you do. What exactly is the dirty
0: scheduler then doing if you have a NIF? Is it's basically, like, um, you have this one core which is responsible for NIFs?
1: Well, it's not, it's, so you can write, so of course, because it, NIFs have been around for forever, right? And so you, in the past, you'd actually have to somehow track it. I mean, you can do it. It's not, it's difficult, I think, unless you're used to it, but you have to be able to somehow run your code in like a snippet, right? Like this much time you're going to run your code and then yield back to the scheduler and then wait till you get the scheduler again and then run again. And you have to like, kind of like, just, just run your code for a certain amount of time and And it's not passively, but cooperatively hand back the scheduler or whatever it's called, a lock or something. I'm not too sure exactly how it's done, but what I do know is there's ways to do this, right? Because otherwise, it'd be difficult to write this kind of scheduler, write a NIF. But you have to be careful because, like I said, if you don't hand it back, your whole Beam instance, if I understand correctly, will run really bad because it just knocks everything off because you're just using up the time and then it just won't run very well because you're, I mean, the whole point of the Beam, right, is that it needs to give equal time to every single process while they still have code to run, while they still have a message in their queue. And so if you hog it, then it's just going to make everything terrible shape. And so the dirty NIF is just a way that it's a separate scheduler that runs by itself and you can just hog it as much as you want until you're done. But I think the main issue is that if you have a bunch of NIFs that, our Hoglin's scheduler, you're never going to be able to use them for anything else. That's what I think is the bad part. But at least they won't throw off your entire Beam machine, which is the most important part.
0: So, so I guess that's important if you have NIFs which don't just run in, like I don't know, like a nanosecond or whatever, right? Like if you have NIFs which need yeah. a bit more time to run, then you would reach for a dirty scheduler.
1: So last episode, we talked a lot about like, you can use Rust to do the, the computation. All right, let's say it's very, very expensive even for Rust. You would just hand it over and say, run this NIF on a dirty scheduler, let the thing run to the end, and then keep going from there. That would be the way that you could do it.
0: Yeah, okay, I see. The one thing about that is like, also then, like, I mean, we, we mentioned that last episode, which is also why I bet that Rust is also this language, which has quite the strong presence as like a NIF language in the Beam community, mainly because if, if you run some stuff in a NIF, then it, and that stuff goes boom, then your whole beam goes boom, right? <laughs> like, in that case, please don't let it crash.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's why something like Rust usually works good because it's much more, there's much less undefined behavior, which would obviously make a yeah. machine crash.
0: It's much more about safety and handling all the various insanities of running close on the metal. Okay. Yeah, okay, but, but to get back to the example because we went off a bit of an on a tangent here which is I think fine, but so get a request, and like what Cowboy or whatever HTTP server does, that like it spawns the process for you or reuses the process which already was spawned and now has been done a while already. But you basically get this process for all to yourself. And now I talked about okay, like how it doesn't it get scheduled, yet you get some safeties and some guarantees on even if you go haywire in this one process, the rest of the VM will still work, will still chuck along. This was great talk from like Sasha uh, Urek on um, the soul of Elixir and Erlang where it basically shows off literally that like in, in a live demo way as this one process which goes broke and then shows up, like the rest of the system still is responsive. And I think here's a good point to get into this mentor you hear over and over in the community, which <laughs> I also just quoted, uh, let it crash. Because even if in that one process, in your one request handling, something goes wrong, again, this will only affect this one process, like this one request. And what the um, HTTP server then like will do like under the hood, it will restart that process. And that doesn't mean that the request gets restarted because that request is done for like this this is an HTTP request, most likely. So this is done. But the next request which comes in might then use the process again. So like, yeah, that one request is lost, but your system as a whole is still working and, and, and functioning as expected and as it should be. And there are situations in like HTTP where request and Phoenix request where you say, okay, like, I don't know, like something unexpected happened here. Like, I, I can't deal with this right now. And then it's okay to respond with a 500 if like something went wrong. And this is, for example, something Phoenix will do for you. Like, it will, when like an exception of some sort does raise, like Phoenix will take care of taking that and returning a 500 response. And then stopping the request. But even if that particular process crashes completely for whatever reason, I mean, yeah, then the HTTP request will never get like a response. That At some point, it will time out. But again, your system will still work. And I think getting this just gifted out of the door without having to think about it is beautiful. And that's not a guarantee other platforms can give you so easily. Like Ruby and Rails does for like regular exceptions, but I think there you could also run into situations where other processes are affected.
1: The other thing too that you have to keep in mind also is like you're going to get that process, if it does get restarted, like if it's been supervised and it's been told to restart that process, you'll get something back into an initial working state, right? And that has yes. many meanings to it. And that could also bring you to some trouble too, right? Let's just say that that's true. you have a user that has a, maybe they're missing their their surname. And you're expecting there to be a full name in there. And for some reason, whenever you get to some piece of the code and you get this problem, you're just going to have the same issue over and over and over again, right? And OTP has a way to solve this problem. And that's basically bubble up and keep crashing up until the system goes down. Or until maybe you, you invent some kind of circuit breaker and just kind of cut that, shut that piece of their system down too.
0: Yeah, we actually have, I have a story around that. Like We, in the past... Place I worked there, we had like an event-driven uh, event-sourced system, and it was a secure system. So we had like read logic, and we had write logic, and that was separate from each other. And for that to work, we had like projectors, which basically can listen to events, and then for each event, like they update a database table, and then they when you read from the database table. So it's like a read cache, so to speak. And what happened is that like an, basically an unexpected event came into the event store, and the projection crashed, because I like, could didn't know how to deal with that event. I mean, like it, it was just wasn't handled, and like it, uh, it created like an error. And I don't really remember the details if it was like a division by zero, but something, something unexpected happened, and the projection crashed. And because of the nature of this projection, it uh, it has like at least one delivery. So the thing crashed. The event wasn't handled. It restart got so restarted by the supervisor event. It, like it looked okay uh, last handled event number was one two three let's ha- handle the next event number one two four and one two four is the broken one again It crashes, and so on and so forth and that actually brought yeah. our whole system down like everything was down after that because this one projection wasn't able to handle the event and what we added after that was like this a pattern of having like a supervisor instead of a supervisor like we had the supervisor which was actually monitoring the projections and that one was again monitored by another supervisor, which had like a restart strategy in transient, I think. And that basically just says, yeah, don't restart. <laughs> if it crashes, don't restart. So we still had all the guarantees of like, okay, if like the projection crashes for like the database not being available for whatever weird reason, yes, it's still going to get restarted. And then maybe it fixes it itself and we get all the nice guarantees around the supervision there. But if the crash is because of like an unfixable error, it will only bubble up so far. It will bubble up until that particular piece of the application and that will be unavailable. And yes, then a human needs to get online and fix this, but it will not bring down other parts of the system, which arguably should not be affected by that kind of mistake. And that's a decision you can make. That's like the BOTP and Beam gives you tools to build systems like that, to make decisions like that, to say, okay, like, how should this restart and what should crash together? And all these kind of things are, there are tools for you there to craft and design systems without having to build that yourself. And that is the big, big selling point of what OTP gives you.
1: And that's another thing too, is I think a lot of people kind of put too much not necessarily a lot of people, but some people maybe when you're starting off, you start to kind of say, "Oh, you know, I have OTP, I have Erlang, I could do whatever, and my system will last for forever." But it's not really like that, right? What Erlang and stuff does is that they they guarantee that your system will start in a certain order, and things will be like there's going to be contracts that are going to be created, right? Okay, first this one, then that one, then that one, and if something crashes too many times when you're starting up, then basically everything will eventually just go down. Right, there's this yeah. kind of guarantee that it has. So I, there's a, I think Fred is the one who said this very interesting. I forgot what exactly he said, but it was something like you need to start thinking about like your your supervision tree as like a series of guarantees, and that really kind of put my mindset into a different way. And I think that makes a lot of sense because yeah, like you have this guarantee when you start up, but you also have this guarantee when things go down that certain things will happen right like these things will will crash or this area will crash and then like you said you can also guarantee that okay if these things go down at least they're down here and they're transient so i know that that stuff will be segregated
0: yeah at the end of the day i feel like the beam has really been designed with this okay the happy path is nice and all but we don't live always in the world where the happy path is an option so what do we do about the bad path what do we do about when shit hits the fan, so to speak, like when something breaks and that's like the the, the stance they took when they it feels like that's the stance they took when they designed this and the beam gives you like a lot of patterns to deal with that but again at the end of the day you still need to apply them you still need to learn about them and you still need to think about your system as a whole you don't get just everything and stability and 1999 percent uptime for free but you get really nice building blocks to basically avoid a whole bunch of boilerplate you would otherwise have to write and probably would write wrongly because this stuff is complex like it's not easy so it's nice that you have these guarantees of like okay certain order at startup and like very well defined behavior at at error and shutdown to help you solve the problems which matter to you. Because I do believe that how exactly your system is supposed to start up and how exactly to make sure that like errors get managed and handled in a certain way is not necessarily the stuff we get paid for, but it's like a necessity. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and we also talked about like when you start working with Erlang and stuff, you start having these ideas like, okay, what may go wrong and how can I protect myself against it? And you start to think about what kind of things can I recover from? What kind of things can I not recover from? Like, okay, yeah, if I yeah. have a website, maybe my website, my homepage is like static. If my database goes down, then I should stick. I should still be able to serve my static uh, website, right? I shouldn't have to crash because my database is down. These kind of things you have to start thinking about.
2: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching.
0: Yeah, it makes it visible like it drags it into a spotlight, so to speak. Yeah, one thing I, I feel like we, because we already talked about startup uh, is that what actually happens when you start up, right? Because like your Beam application is usually made up of well, various smaller applications. That's what they're actually called in the Beam lingo. For example, Cowboy or Phoenix or um, Postgrex. I think Postgrex is the, the Postgres driver. Um, all of these are Beam applications, and they then start up. And what that mutually means is like a meditative root supervisor, and that supervisor, again, it's like a Beam concept. And the job of a supervisor is to start a whole bunch of other processes. And what the supervisor is doing, like it listens to these processes, make sure they start in the specified order. And when they crash, they, they get restarted in the way you specify. And that's actually, I feel, where a lot of the juice is at, because supervisors don't just restart nearly willy right? You can tell them to restart in certain ways. You can, for example, say, okay, one for one. There's like, different strategies to supervise. And there's the one for one strategy, which is the most straightforward and often also good enough, where you just say, okay, like if one process crashes, just restart that one process and that's, and then we're done. But there's also, the, for example, all for one, which says, okay, if one process crashes, restart all processes I have like as children. And then there's also rest for one, which says, okay, if one process crashes, then restart all the processes which were started after it. And then, for example, I've actually used that where we had like a name registry process basically starting up as first and then like some other processes which registered itself to that name registry or like looked up other processes through that name registry. And if then one of these registered processes um, die, you have to consider, okay, like what what do I do now? Because the some other processes might depend on this one process which just died, but they don't know that it just died. So one easy solution is to say, hey, just <laughs> restart everything after that and then you can or restart everything and then you don't need to deal about that and then, and then everything gets heals up, so to speak, which is an option if you have transient state. Sometimes you don't. Um, But these are then the kind of decisions you can make. And by then nesting supervisors inside of supervisors, you can get these really complex behaviors about, okay, this part of application restarts in that way, this application restarts in another way, and I can create this tree of processes, this supervision tree, how it's usually called, and that then actually helps me solve the problems I do care about. Yeah, monologue end.
1: (laughs) Isn't there like, I saw something that's going to be coming out. I think it's not out yet, but there's a new type of supervisor that was just being worked on. Have you seen this?
0: No, like I know that we have this dynamic supervisor, which is...
1: Yeah, that's the one dynamic supervisor, which is supposed to have something special to it. Have you seen it?
0: It's actually like it has been out for a while. Like the dynamic supervisor is, as far as I understand, more of like a sugar... in Elixir for the um, (laughs) very confusingly named simple one-for-one strategy. And there's nothing simple about the simple one-for-one strategy. And what the dynamic supervisor is basically doing, because when you usually work with supervisors and have all these strategies, you specify the children at like startup time, right? So you say, okay, my supervisor starts up now with these five children, and these are all the children it will ever know. I have a simple one for one supervisor it's more of along the lines of saying okay, like I have a supervisor here and I have like a, a schema so to speak of like a process I want to start like a worker process but I can't start an arbitrary number of it after after it already started up so like while the application is running I could say, keep hey, please sp- spawn five more of these and that's like what the dynamic supervisor and what the simple one for one strategy is solving um, from my understanding and I've actually used it like I've, I've built that was more of a toy project of mine, but I built Fun Retro Clone, where each retro board with stickies was like one process. And you could basically say, okay, please create me a new retro board, and then it created a unique identifier, and then it uh, forwarded you to like to to, that, to a page where you could then work on the retro board, and the, each of these retro boards was like one process, and that was actually powered by a dynamic supervisor, which started one virtual board for each virtual session you could um, you wanted to create. So this is a thing.
1: I just sent you over a link. Maybe you might not have seen this. This happened about le- less than thirty days ago from today. Something called a partition supervisor, which I suppose is supposed to be like a supervisor. But you can, uh, like, if your supervisor has too many things it supervises, then you want to be able to quickly find a process, I believe. And so that's like the idea is that you can split up your 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 supervisor into multiple different partitions. Have you seen this yet?
0: No, this is new.
1: Yeah, so when you said dynamic supervisor, I mean that—that's—I got confused. with this is the actual one that I was thinking about because I saw it on the Google groups, and it seems pretty interesting. So I believe the idea is that you want to be able to split up your processes underneath on your one supervisor to different partitions, so you can easily get to what you want to faster.
0: Ah, okay. So like, it helps you to avoid these big bottleneck processes where everybody is interested yeah. in, right? That's interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to dig into that deeper. We're going to include a link to this in the show notes, but since neither I don't know, we used it, we can only speculate how useful so it is in one, certain situations. Yeah, this
1: one has got to be 1.14, right? Because 1.13 already came out. So this is going to be a interesting new one. But yeah, the dynamic supervisor, I've actually used that one quite a few times. It's, I mean, it's, it's useful. I didn't think simple one-for-one was that difficult, but... I can understand that it, the API is not said nice. I mean, it comes from Erlang, right? Erlang APIs is not, not all of them are so straightforward. Like that's why sometimes people like to have wrappers around them in Elixir when you're going to use them.
0: Yeah, I feel like the main thing about the the simple one-for-one one strategy is that like it reuses the API of the normal supervisor, but like the, the problem domain is like a little bit different. It's like just different enough for for it to be weird and unintuitive, so I, I get why why the dynamic supervisor was like um created in Lixia to make that more streamlined.
1: The one thing I always found kind of weird is like you have to use these child specs, which I thought was a big change. I'm not sure why we decided to go that way, but I guess maybe to keep the startup strategy closer to the actual implementation.
0: Yes, that was my understanding of it. That you basically inside of your gen server or whatever you can specify, okay, I'm because there is the place usually where you know best how to restart, how to how to how to start you, you what what kind of arguments are needed and all that kind of stuff. The thing about child uh, specs is I feel they are well documented, but the documentation is not that discoverable. Like if you want to figure out what the fuck what the child spec actually is, uh, then it, it takes a fair bit of googling until you figure out, find the the documentation. It might have changed there. Like I, I do remember. It being like a, I had a big issue about that like a few years back where I was like, okay, this child spec thing is like related to supervision, but I don't really get how and where do I need to look. And it's I think it's documented inside of a supervisor module, which is not necessarily the first place you look when you see this for the first time, because usually you see it in like a server context. So yeah, it's a bit confusing. But it, I, like the th- I think the problem it solves is like keeping the start information close to the truth where it's actually relevant
1: because yeah, i think i remember reading like readme docs back then and you always had to say this is how you just start up your supervisor or this is how you just i need to start up this process for your supervision tree yeah that was always a little bit difficult
0: yeah that was then actually before my time because when i was really digging into this stuff the child spec was bit stuff landed a bit earlier so I didn't really have to deal with that. But I, th- I do remember that I saw some of these uh, nodes and various like dependencies. Okay, you have to start it this way and that way. And yeah, yeah. so it gives more power to the child being started. And also, like, it has this nice side effect of where you, when you say, hey, I want to start this child. In most cases, you can just specify the module and that was about it right? Like you don't need to specify anything else. You can modify it when you say, okay, I want to start my child here and I want to give it some arguments and you just have a tuple with like the name of, for, of the process of a module in the first place and then the arguments in the second. But if you don't care about that, you can just give a module, which is which reads nicely, and I think it also yeah. does a bit jo- yeah, good job of like encapsulating that. So yeah, but it is a bit intuitive when you first try to figure out. Okay, I have this child spec here, and like what when it basically try to 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 reverse engineer, like okay, get this child spec thing, you know, like what does it do? That's I found that very confusing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that it took me some time to wrap around it, and also the, it does take a little bit of time to actually know how to do everything, like know how to write out a proper child spec. But it is nice to be able to just. Dis- type the module name into your supervision tree and it just does it that's kind of the nice part
0: yeah and i think one, one thing we should definitely mention is i've seen it mentioned a few times in the community is that people say like hey every process you start should be supervised and i do think that this is a good rule of thumb if basically if you think about starting a process unsupervised you should only do it when you actually know and understand what that means and what implications that has. And if you don't, you should start a supervised. (laughs) <laughs> and I feel like this is actually one place where the Elixir docs and especially like everything revolving around task has really dropped the ball because uh, the task documentation, for example, talks about, okay, you can start, You can have this async function and then you can just uh, give it just a function and that will be ran asynchronously inside of process. But that process which gets started is actually started unsupervised. And I feel that's where... The, the documentation could be a lot more clear about, hey, this has implications and you can read about them over here. But if you don't understand that yet, maybe just do something different. Maybe use like the supervised task solution. Um, have you ever had the experience and the pleasure of having like a process, of like a road process, unsu- which is started unsupervised in your application, or maybe like in the legacy project or anything?
1: I was using task. That... What was it? It wasn't async. It wasn't it was start actually. Because what I wanted to do was kick off some background jobs and return a reply at the same time. And so I was using task. I think was it async? No, it should be. Sorry, what was the other one I used? It wasn't async or was it it was start. Because if you use async, async is actually linked, right? Yes. And so initially async I was linked. using a, initially I was using async, but those tasks would die immediately because the request is gone, right? As soon as you return back yeah and so I had to use test that start and that worked because they would just run either until they were until they crashed until they finished so it was never really an issue where it's like a runaway process but now i try i actually use the test that supervisor and still do the still do the the starting from there because you can still do a start I think or something similar I forgot what the name is
0: Yeah you can say like also start a no but... link
1: I think async no link is what I usually use
0: Yeah I, I guess, yeah exactly that that's the thing and yeah. I also feel like that that we could have a bit more abstraction around this because I I have written my fair deal of task supervisors with like a bit of sugar around okay now I want to Start a stream of them, and I want to collect the, re, 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 the responses, and I want to deal with failure there. <laughs> and I feel like at that point I have written this code like five times already. If you ever get in the situation where you want to start a whole bunch of tasks to do the same kind of work, then there's kind of no way around it at the moment—at least not none I know of. There's maybe a library out there, but I don't know about it. Then and like maybe to get to to also get back to like what actually happens when you don't do that. One of the biggest things which happens is you basically lose the ability to shut down your system cleanly. So if you for whatever reason start a process which is not linked and not supervised to anything, and that does then maybe more work than you expected, or it, it does a long running task for whatever reason. And then you in that exact moment you get like a your system gets the message to shut down, what Shutdown means is like it goes through a supervision tree and like it tells each supervisor to, to kill its children and then wait for its children to exit. But if you just want, if you have processes which are not supervised, then yeah, they, they literally don't get the message and they don't shut down. So at some point they will of course shut down, but it will like the system will. I think that, will it even wait for them or will it just kill them brutally? I don't even know to be honest.
1: Should be some type of brutal kill, right? Because it has to shut down the beam.
0: Yeah, probably, which was just gonna be a brutal kill and. That's like one thing you lose. And there's also, like you could also then say, hey, but I used start link and then they are linked and all that kind of stuff. So like they they will die together with a process which from which I originally started them. And that process is supervised, so it's all fair. Yes, as long as that process dies abnormally. That's actually like one of the bit weird interactions in OTP. Like uh, if you have linked processes and like one of these linked processes dies with the exit reason normal, which I think is the case when you have, maybe, or is it the exit reason shutdown in case of shutdown? I don't, I don't remember the details there. But normal so is basically it should be there. the normal, yeah. Because yeah, I guess normal it exits be normal.
1: are normal. So yeah. if your process exits normally, you're just basically it means that that its process's job is done. Yeah, yeah, and doesn't yeah. necessarily mean it's going to kill the ones linked to. Yeah, and like the thing is sense. like when. The thing mm-hmm.
0: is, like, when a process exits normal, like, as you said, it doesn't kill linked processes. So um, link is not a sure guarantee to say, hey, I always want to die when this other process dies over there. So if this other process dies normal, then that process will just happily chuck along. So, yeah.
1: I mean, the the point of linking is if something bad happens, then anybody who's linked to it should also die, and yeah. so on yeah. and so forth. Or you,
0: Or you basically should be informed at least, right? I mean, I think supervisors are using links to get a message that the process dies but they are trapping exits which is a thing you can do like you can say on the process level hey i'm trapping exits which basically means please otp please beam just don't use the default exit process uh, exit signal handling but i want to do it when you write some code and say okay like i now got the signal the message that this process is supposed to die because for example due to a link then you can do something else and That's this is like a mechanism supervisors use to well not die <laughs> <laughs> the link process dies, but to restart it instead.
1: Yeah, but like what you get, right, is you're going to get like which, which process it was. You're going to get the PID, right? And I think that's what it uses to. Yeah. I mean, is yeah. that what it actually uses? Is it like it it has like a way to somehow link the PID to how to start it up?
0: I think this is how what it uses. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know in 100% detail like how the supervisor then works, but at the end of the day, like it keep, keeps a record of like, okay, these are the PIDs I care about. They link to me. This like, I think it's like probably pit to child spec the, the definition, like how it's supposed to start. And then like when that pit goes down, it just restarts it or according to whatever rules you gave it, restart stuff. So at the end of the day, like what the supervisor does under the hood is fairly unimpressive, so to speak. Like it doesn't do a lot. Like, it's not that much a Supervisor does, but like in this, like combine all of that and you get all of these nice guarantees that Beam gives you. So that's like, I feel like that's a, kind of the beauty of design.
1: Yeah, I mean, the language itself is very, very small and simple and the constructs you get are also small and simple. But using a link and trapping exits will give you basically what a Supervisor does is that start up, the, start up the process. I'm supposed to be holding on to the PID. When you get a message that a PID went down, You would just somehow link back to okay, what was this thing before? Okay, let me restart it and start the new PID, which I believe is probably how the whole thing works. But I have to take up more looking to see what is actually going on. Yeah,
0: and at the end of the day, that's kind of it. Like that's what makes up the magic dough, which is, which is the beam. There's, I mean, there's of course some some more details to it. We have an episode where we talk about how to manage state. And where you might want to go with ETS, like long-term storage, or where you might want to go with like in-memory storage, just like a map, or where you might want to go with a DB. Like that's, that's a whole different story then, but that's about state. But at the end of, of the day of what what OTP gives you and what, how you think and manage processes, that's it. There's not much more to it. Um, this is what powers most of the Beam applications out there. I think anything, Mm -hmm. anything else we missed?
1: Think so. I mean, just it's pretty. Like, I can see world but yeah. I mean, what there's actually kind of a lot of stuff. Like originally, this episode's all about like what's inside of OTP, right? And I just took a look at on Wikipedia, and there's a lot of stuff in OTP that, like, when you when we talk about OTP, use OTP and this kind of things, they're talking about these design patterns, right? Supervisor Gen Server Gen State Machine Gen State M. Yeah, but
0: all it's, of these are like more like helpers. Yeah, yeah, they're libraries, yeah.
1: yeah. But using those patterns or helpers or libraries is what really makes your system strong, right? But when you take a look at what's inside of an OTP, I mean, they also list that the Erlang interpreter, the Beam itself is part of OTP, the compiler, the protocol communication, right, when you link these things together, Dialyzer, which I never knew was part of OTP, I thought it was something outside. Amnesia and some of these other libraries. They they also say it's actually part of OTP, which is interesting. Yeah. Also SASL, which is interesting too, which nobody really talks too much about SASL so much. I don't you know what that is, to be that? honest. Yeah. So it's like a standard way of logging information, I believe. So system architecture support libraries. I've seen SASL a couple of times. Like there's ways that you can add, what was it? It's been it's been a couple of years since I looked at it. Like you can Add some special logging to your Elixir libraries or your Erlang libraries or something. It's something with the logger, I think. There's a debugger. There's there's just all kinds of stuff in here. It's insane. I and mean, there's a crypto library. There's SSL, which also depends upon the crypto library. There's just too much stuff. Yeah, where, where were we? And <laughs> get lost in like all the beep stuff.
2: You're basically worried that this is like what makes up the magic. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I mean, like one thing maybe to add is like that we mentioned the gen server a few times, and the gen
0: server is the Beams pattern around how to be a well-behaved process. So that's like some callbacks saying start, for example, how do you initialize the process? How do you handle signals? That kind of stuff. And like one important note is which is which we have said a set and few times throughout the podcast, but like inside of one process, everything is sequential, which I think is beautiful. So every process has like a message box and like a, mail- a mailbox. It's not message box, it's a mailbox. And like then that's where messages arrive. That's, for example, then like the, the, the pattern which like the 10 server gives you that like, messages from this mailbox get read in a uh, well-defined order. In theory, you can read messages out of order if you really want to, but if you, for example, build a gen server, it will always read them in order, they, in the same order they arrived. And then everything inside of a process inside of a gen server is sequential, which removes a whole lot of headaches when it comes to concurrent programming. And yeah, then th- th- then this is like, what makes up supervision trees and applications and processes. This is like what powers these systems. And yeah, there is more to it in sense of like various other modules you can use to maybe help with specific problems like state machines and all that kind of stuff and other modules to help you with managing state in general. But when it comes to what do processes actually do and how do they work, there is, like I said, much more to it. That's about it.
1: There's a, there's a lot of stuff that's built into... To gen servers, like if you're going to reach out for for something, gen server is usually a good way to start the process. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that may happen, right? Like if you send a message to something and you're waiting for a message to come back, that thing could die. And I believe the gen server already abstracts a lot of this stuff for you where yes, it's like, exactly. yeah, like they, they handle these weird edge cases that you would never imagine. And that's because it's been like over 30 years of people running this things and they've been tweaking it over this time. They're still tweaking it right now, I'm sure. And so there's always like things that you can never imagine. So unless you have a very good reason, I try to stick with Gen Server or something similar. Even agents are built upon Gen servers and those are pretty simple stuff. So yeah, I like, try to do fr- Gen my fr- Servers.
0: I've written my fair share of Gen servers. Like that's the. It's sometimes it feels a bit boilerplatey when you want this handle cast and handle call. Like, uh, is it should it be an async uh, message? Should it be yeah. a, a synchronous message? That has a fair bit of boilerplate to it. But I always end up at okay. Like, but I. It seems to be the lowest common denominator for for all of these problems. So yes, you have agent, which is more about state management, but then again, like in another situation, you might need a bit more than that. So GenServer really seems to be the, the, the distillation of the essential process, so to speak. So of a general server, which is like, what's what the name stands for? The naming is not the best, to be honest, like the naming could, could be improved upon. But GenServer is basically like the incarnation of the general purpose process. Okay. Then, yeah, unless you have anything else to add, Ellen, I would transition us to picks.
1: I'll have to add, I need to think about a pick.
0: <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. So you're in good company there. I wanted to give you like a to, to, to tell you, hey, please do a pick. And then I wanted to use the time to think of my, on my own. But <laughs> <laughs> that plan failed. <laughs> Could also be like super atypical this week and just have no picks. You don't get picks for this week, people.
1: It's good for me. I think I need a break yeah and like has the, lost a
0: lot of lost, lost lost a lot of blood right like you're still not this quite sure. true yeah <laughs> sadly
1: so stay away from glass that's my pick is uh remove all the glass in your home
0: yeah for me i all, all the kind of stuff i'm consuming right now all the kind of stuff i'm interested in right now i already did picks off like with some books a few weeks back so yeah i'm I'm also gonna stay without picks this week weird first episode without picks i'm sorry folks if you like skip ahead yeah. to get the picks this week i'm sorry
1: <laughs> yeah it's been pretty crazy this week so i had, I had to come with i'll probably be busy uh this week i need to start getting moving on stuff so i hopefully i have some picks for you guys next week i think i needed to pick another rust book i have to, I have a couple for you nice um, i'm That's almost lovely. finishing up remember last week my pick was the uh live testing i'm almost done with that i'm about quarter way through so hopefully i can finish that between today and tomorrow
0: nice That's what I I love about you, Alan. Always a new Rust book lined up.
1: Yeah, I have some Rust courses to take, so.
0: All right, folks. Then uh, thank you for listening and tune in next time when we have another episode of
2: Elixir Mix. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.